I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with the world's finest thinkers and teachers, exploring Sharon's latest book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Okay, well thank you Greg. Um, it, you know, it's, it's such a big step here at Union for Greg to have launched this uh, degree program in Buddhism. Um, because Union has, has, for a long time, you know, been very ecumenical uh, and inclusive and multi-denominational within the Christian tradition, going back way, way back. Um, but now, increasingly, we have a, a, um, a number of programs that go beyond the, the Christian tradition, and increasingly, it's kind of a globally uh, ecumenical institution. Um, and everyone here is very excited about that, uh, and I'm delighted to be here with uh, with two people, one of whom I've known for a long time, Sharon, an angel I've heard so many good things about, uh, from Buddhists and others, that, that uh, I really feel lucky to be in conversation with you. Um, I'm curious, uh, how many of you have something like a daily meditation practice? Just so we can have a sense of that. Okay, certainly not everyone, but... And how many of you were fudging when you said you had a date? <laughs> Those are the really good news, the ones you told the truth. Um, okay, so the, the title tonight, and by the way, we will open this up to question and answer after, after, uh, after a little, little bit of conversation among us. Um, title is Buddhism, Love, and Politics, uh, which is pretty abstract. Uh, so to try to make it a little more concrete, um, you know, these days when, when uh, people in the United States think of politics, I think many of them, you know, feel their thoughts immediately turning to the uh, subject of Donald Trump. It's been that way for, um, you know, a year at least. Uh, and so I just wanted to start out uh, by asking both Angel and Sharon, and, and Angel, maybe I'll start with you. Um, just by way of putting some, some flesh on this question of, of, of you know, the engagement between Buddhism and uh, politics, I'm sure that both of you, a year ago, after the election, had a number of people come up to you and say, what do I do? Uh, in other words, what is it about, you know, what, what is it about Buddhism that I can bring to uh, the challenge I find myself in? Um, I'm assuming these would be people who were not enthusiastic about uh, Trump's election, which of course isn't everyone, but they're probably the, the, the kinds who came to you um, in, in search of help. Uh, or they might have asked, you know, what can meditation help me, you know, what, 
situate myself here. I'm just wondering uh, what kinds of things each of you, what kinds of guidance each of you provided. Uh, I, I don't know that people initially asked for, I, I, I think people were just in shock for a really long time. I don't um, think they can hear you. Yeah. They don't look like they can hear you. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I think that um, people, thank you, the gods and the, the gods of sound, asking, you shall be answered. Um, I th initially, people didn't actually, um, I think, ask for help, but rather were in denial for a really long time. That was my initial experience. And... Uh, it took until at least after the inauguration before I think people had some sense that this was going to happen, like this is happening. And um, the question of what do I do with this was less about how do I deal with the fact of uh, 45 and more about how do I deal with people that uh, voted for him. So I, for me, that was really what people, in terms of Buddhist, I mean, people around race and immigrant rights but and they issues. Then you had to deal with people they knew who had voted for him and or how to think about Trump voters. Yeah, how to deal with the, um, the fact of we have a country that has expressed itself as devoutly racist and devoutly uh, sexist and misogynist and all of these things that I think a lot of uh, particularly folks in privileged you know groups thought had you know we're, we're beyond that and so I think there was a lot of shock and so what, did, what did you what did you tell them um, <laughs> where's your passport was the first thing <laughs> uh, and you know that we from the from the lens in which I'm often speaking, that this is you know something that has always been here, and like most of the things that we have not uh, peered into this aspect of our social ego, and so just as we work with our individual and personal ego, that we sit with it, we uh, sit with the feelings that arise that are difficult and uncomfortable, and explore and investigate what those are. Uh, so that we have at least the beginning of some kind of articulation about how we're actually feeling rather than merely going into a reactive place because I think a lot of people are caught between you know am I political now or am I uh, a Buddhist mm -hmm. right and so there was a, a lot of tension for people around like how do I engage this political reality like do I do the angry you know what the What's going on here, or do I like be a Buddhist somehow? I assume you didn't recommend anger. Um, no, I actually highly recommend anger. <laughs> I, I recommend that people are, you know, allow themselves to be in contact fully with um, the what what I think is, you know, the anger, but what's underneath there is is grief and the pain and the sense of loss and the um, recognition of how out of touch many of us were with what was going on. And so I'm, I'm all for the anger um, that is related to. Uh, okay. So you can count Angela's pro-anger as a chair. Uh, you, could, you could take it like that. <laughs> well, yeah. What, 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 kind of, what kind of guidance did you give people? Well, um, oh, you can hear me, right? I feel like I'm booming. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, I think, first of all, you're correct. I would never make an assumption about somebody's political beliefs. Um, although the vast amount of people who came to talk to me were Iraq. And it's interesting, it's been interesting watching the trajectory. Uh, when the topic was introduced tonight, since there are three of us and three words, Buddhism, politics, and love, I thought, okay, which one am I? <laughs> and I thought, well, I've got to be love, right? I'm love. So, um, a lot of times people were just incredulous in the beginning, like, are you telling me I'm supposed to love somebody like that? Who, and then, you know, I'd be doing these tweet chats and someone would write, why should I love someone 
who wants to deny my existence or annihilate my existence? <clears throat> a good question. Um, and I kept going back to the Buddha, saying that, he, they say that when the Buddha taught loving-kindness meditation, <clears throat> he taught it as the antidote to fear. So that makes sense, right? If you think of love as acquiescence or supplication or giving in or approving, it makes no sense. But if you think of it as the antidote to fear, that's suddenly something to ponder. And these days, it's interesting, like over this period of time, the kind of main question I find has shifted. And a lot of people are saying, I can't bear myself. I can't bear this anger, this perpetual, constant outrage. It's not to say that the answer is passivity, but there's got to be something, you know, where this energy can be channeled because it is just, it's so corrosive and it's so um, never ending. You know, I just don't see that it's all leading. So I found that was interesting, just kind of watching that, that okay. movement. So on this uh, love question, I mean, I do think uh, anybody gets to identify with love, you do. For one thing, it's been the title of two of your books, Real Love and uh, Love, love Kindness. Oh, three. Oh, three. Love, your love your enemies, which you co-authored with Bob Thorne. Four, the hardest word is the word. Okay. Five, okay, that's the kindest hand. We get the idea, we get the idea. Okay. Um, so, uh, but I want to, and also I would say you're as closely associated as maybe uh, anyone in America with loving kindness, meditation, yeah. meta-meditation, as it's, as it's in Pali. Um, and, and the way that works, if none of you have ever, if some of you have never tried it, um, is you, you generally, you, you start out, you move from people that it's easy to think about kindly toward people in your life that it's harder to think about kindly, and you eventually get to your, your enemies. So, would you recommend that, uh, that people actually try to get all the way to Donald Trump, or Donald Trump's followers, or, uh, and, and, and either feel compassion or whatever, whatever label you want to put on it? I think it's part of a process. I mean, I think there are other elements to the process in that um, unlike many people who felt the sort of end goal for a while, because people were in shock so often, the end goal was I've got to sit down and find out what my cousin's thinking. What can they be thinking? This is like alien to me, you know? Like, what do they believe? What do they care about? So that kind of civil conversation appeared as the end goal for a while, and it was never my end goal. I mean, I thought, that's a good thing, but um, by the time people are, you know, chanting Nazi slogans in New York City, you know, where I happen to live part-time, uh, I have too much, you know, inherited trauma to like, say, let's have a civil conversation as our final resolution. I think the civil conversation is important, and as long as we are in a power dynamic, which is the way it is, I would like to see these people disempowered. So now I'll put on the politics mantle, you know, in a loving way. Um, <laughs> you know, this is also a little bit based on the things Angel started saying, you know, like, I wrote a lot about voting before the election because I'm very, very passionate about people voting. And I never tell anyone who to vote for. You know, I just say, you've got to participate, you've got to engage, this is ours. This is as close as one gets to the Buddhist declaration of the innate dignity of every human being, you know, in a political sphere. You've got to do it. And I started getting these comments, um, like, uh, I think so much less of you now. <laughs> you know, why are you asking people to engage in an evil system? And so there are lots of problems besides, you know, uh, the level of discourse. Mm -hmm. So, Angel, do you have anything to say about this question? I mean, how, what attitude toward Trump and Trump's followers? I mean, people invariably will think about them and have some kind of reaction to them and conceive of them in a certain way. And at one extreme is trying to feel compassion and love. Uh, <laughs> where do you think, what do you recommend? Yeah, you know, I think trying to feel compassion is always a slippery slope. And, you know, trying to feel love is a slippery slope. I think both of those are things that we, you know, if, if we're, we're talking about a, a kind of love that um, allows for people's innate dignity, for their inherent dignity, that it's not about trying to feel that, but rather to connect with the parts of ourselves and uh, th that 
feels um, resistant to connecting with what they're, they're suffering. And so for me, that has been uh, a lot of the conversations I've had with people is we have, if we think about this in a political way and then kind of uh, turn and look at a Buddhist lens, um, if you think about what, what someone is experiencing or what they're doing that would cause them to in, in any way advocate for someone that is, you know, so clearly expressing, uh, you know, just vile things, you know, hateful things, uh, things that are harmful to women, things that are uh, not, not expressing our dignity and not expressing our dignity on the, on the part, certainly not on the part of most of uh, the people that are in the United States. Um, if you think about what the population of the United States actually is, like there, there has to be some pain there. For me, that's probably the most Buddhist of my sort of central locations is that I operate from a sense of not central, not inherent evil, but rather uh, if, if people are indeed, as I believe they are, fundamentally good and they have basic goodness, then there has to be some pain in any, uh, any kind of act that, is, uh, that expresses hate and rage and you know, the kind of frustration that would lead to putting someone like that in office. And so thinking about it politically, I think, of, I think about it very much this way. For a certain um, group of people that have uh, been unmoored from many of the things that are familiar to them over the last decade, you know, 15 years or so, uh, you know, family, you know, place, work, and how work operates in the world is, is changing rapidly. Uh, what we think of as meaningful work is changing, environment is changing, and it's, you know, as we recognize what's happening to our environment, we're saying like, you know, no, no cutting the, you know, the tops off of, you know, mountains, right, to dig out coal, that kind of thing. Uh, you have an emergence of, and a recognition of populations that, you know, the, the demographic is of color, much more so than people acknowledge, that a lot of people are queer. So for, for certain people, like, their world has, like, changed. And that can't be anything but really painful, that their, their identity is fundamentally threatened. Their sense of like who they are and who this country is, what this country is about, that it used to be for them. And I'm talking particularly about uh, you know, the demographic that Trump most speaks to, and you know, white men you know, in often like rural places that have not moved, and also very wealthy people. Like this country was designed for certain people. And we are in a moment which people are coming into the recognition of like, oh, but there are other people that are claiming space in this country too. So I go to the place of like, oh, they're, they're suffering. And from that understand, that sense of like, oh yeah, I can see how they're suffering. I, it makes more sense to me how they could uh, get behind someone that's doing what they're doing. It's not getting behind that person, but rather getting behind someone that they perceive as um, keeping some, some kind of their identity intact. And if you don't have a practice that allows you to deconstruct your identity, whether that identity is personal or it is national and social, then it must be exquisitely painful. It's painful even when you have a practice. And so that's how I approach it, and I end up with not the, you know, the ordinary way we sense of call love, but like a, an appreciation for mm -hmm. where people are at in their pain. Okay. Yeah. So, so this question, I think, is an extension of some of what you're saying, but you know it's not. But, um, I mean, it seems to me that uh, if you don't want to see Trump reelected, uh, it's a good idea to understand as clearly as possible the forces that got him elected. Um, and... I think there has been a, um, a tendency to uh, oversimplify in, in this regard. Um, I mean, first of all, there's been a, there, there is a certain tendency to just out and out, um, to cast Trump voters at large as just bad in some sense. They are all this, they're all that. I mean, Hillary said, what, 50% were deplorable. Um, they're all racist, whatever. Um, Here's a, a fact about myself that I continue to marvel at. Um, three of my four siblings voted for Trump. And 
they actually, none of them fit into any of the categories that have surfaced so far in this conversation. Uh, for one of them, it seems to be about abortion, period. Anyone who is going to appoint the right people in the Supreme Court is going to get the support of this particular sibling. Uh, for another one, it had to do, I think, largely with the dislike of Hillary that actually had begun with a dislike of Bill. And it, it was just this, this amorphous uh, dislike of Clinton. And the way it would, and there was related in that particular sibling this desire, as it was put, to throw a wrench into the works. So it was just a disgust with politics generally. And Trump seemed like the anti politician because he would say these clearly ill advised things that no politician would say. Um, and, 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 and what I'm getting around to is the question of whether. And of course, if, if you start exploring what people are reacting to, you ultimately get into actual political issues, you know, trade, uh, immigration, why are jobs disappearing, what's the role of automation relative to, to trade in making jobs disappear, but it seems to me it all begins with trying to understand what is actually motivating these people, and I, I just want to make a distinction here between empathy in the usual sense of the word, it's, it's like emotional empathy, feeling their pain, and what psychologists call cognitive empathy, which is just understanding the person's perspective, whether or not you care about their pain. And uh, just two related questions, kind of about this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll throw it out to both of you. Um, one is just, can a uh, meditative practice be an aid to just clear comprehension of what's going on inside people? And, and uh, you know what has to happen for you to more clearly understand people and assess the situation. And then, then to get to kind of a deeper level of Buddhism, it, it seems to me that Buddhism is very anti-essentialist, right? I mean, it's an actual, you know, I mean, one way of putting the, the, the famously inscrutable doctrine of emptiness is nothing has essence. If you are attributing essence to things, it's a confusion on your part. And of course, when you say that all of any group of people is anything, you're being essentialist toward them. Uh, and for that matter, in a certain sense, when you, even when you see anyone, maybe even Donald Trump himself, and just feel essence of evil or something, I think a Buddhist might say that is, that is almost a, a, a kind of error of, of cognition or something. I'd be interested in your thought. But anyway, those are my, my two questions. Can, is part of the goal here, is, is something that Buddhism and meditation are well suited to, just understanding the situation, and, and, and is that really deeply rooted in, in Buddhist uh, philosophy? Is that enough? I think so. Although I may answer something else. I'm sitting here thinking about your Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, well, okay? actually, I mean, actually, we did not get to go to Thanksgiving. We did have a family reunion, and in this summer, everyone had the wisdom not to bring it up. We were, I was there for five days with 30 people, and I did not hear the word Trump. Mm -hmm. Which is an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. Um, well, I mean, there's both the Buddhist construct of reality, you know, the worldview, the philosophy, and then there are the practices, and the practices of mindfulness and clear comprehension, which is the word. I and mean, when I learned the word mindfulness uh, way back when in Asia, it was a compound. The word is, the compound is mindfulness, clear comprehension. You know, these days, mindfulness is uh, so often taught, and I think it's a wonderful thing, actually. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's perhaps an incomplete thing. Um, it's so often taught as a way to really inhabit your life, like really taste that cup of tea. Because you're not, for once, multitasking. You're actually tasting it. You're feeling the warmth of the teacup. You're smelling it. It's a much better cup of tea. And one avoids a kind of restless, ceaseless, addictive spiral of like, that wasn't a really good cup of tea. I need different tea. You know, I need superior tea and I need more tea. And rather than saying I'm not paying any attention, that's why it's not that good. Um, you know, so all of that is like, I think, extremely positive. But classically, the purpose of mindfulness is understanding. It's insight or wisdom. It's not just to inhabit your life, it's to understand your life. It's to look at forces that arise in your mind and understand that that leads nowhere but suffering. You know, that's, that's its very flavored texture, nature. If I get lost in this state, it's gonna hurt. And I'm likely to cause harm to others. Um, you understand other forces like loving kindness, which lift us out of that and show us a bigger perspective and create some space. And, you know, so we really understand things differently. And once we understand ourselves differently, 
it would seem there has to be a link to understanding others. And uh, I do feel compassion for a, a whole range of people. Um, and, you know, it, and I like that distinction you just made between cognitive empathy and a more um, relational or emotional empathy because people often ask, someone asked me not t too long ago, in a situation just like this, you know, um, somebody's question was, well, they don't look like they're suffering. I think I, I'd do better if they looked even a little bit like they were suffering. <laughs> they look extremely self-satisfied. They're doing fine, you know, like, I don't know what to say. All I could say was, I know. If they would just crack around the edges, you know, like you think, oh. But I also do know inside because I know what it's like to be that disconnected and to create, to objectify others that much and how alone really you feel when you're in that kind of incredibly divisive, rigid self and other state. So, but it's hard to get there. It's much easier to think, well, you know, that couldn't be coming from a great place. And I think the other part, another part of Buddhism that figures in is that we can aspire to more than mediocrity, you know, in getting by. We can aspire uh, to enormous presence and compassion and wisdom, and rightfully so. It's not out of reach, it's not unthinkable. So do you think what people settle for in, in terms of their life goal to like put other people down or to vilify others or to make sure people, you know, can't afford something like to eat, you know? And I think what a dedication of a life force, you know? And like, that is really sad. It is very sad. And I think we can have that even as we're very active and uh, hopefully quite active in in trying to change the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I think that a lot of the ways that um, we've taken on uh, Buddhist practices and even, you know, worldview in the West uh, rests heavily in a um, kind of seat of privilege that people um, and individuality, and so that a lot of the way that people hold their practices, like, okay, how do I you know, hold myself better, right? Like, how do I be a better person? Which is a kind of, you know, for fixation overall in our kind of self-help culture, um, part of what I think, you know, ushered mindfulness in, right? Is this sort of larger self-help culture getting a little bit more refined about itself. And so where, it, uh, where that way of holding it falls short is, in fact, the extension of from like, how do I hold myself? How do I have my relationship better? How do I not hate my boss? How do I, you know, maybe not hate hate the people that are, you know, Trump voters? Um, but it doesn't get to um, how do I think of them in a different way? How do I understand them, right? How do I have a, a real understanding that doesn't then just have me freeze and do nothing? So I think for a lot of us, the challenge is, is like, oh, okay, we can think of how, Buddhism might help us, you know, not be so angry and not be so aggressive, or if we are angry and aggressive, at least we are aware that we're angry and aggressive and we need to work with that. Uh, but it, it, it is, we have not been, um, I think, endowed or empowered yet with a, a complete enough understanding that allows us to actually still take action in the face of, I disagree, I, I get where they're coming from, and this is impermissible and I'm going to do something about it. So I'm really interested in that place in which not just that we wrestle with our own anger and we you know, are not uh, going around and bashing anybody, but that we can decide or, or drop in, be in a deep enough understanding of where people are coming from, allow for the truth of that, and still take action, and not let that have us freeze so that for the most part, Buddhists are Ill, like we we don't see them on the political scene. We don't have an understanding of the way in which a Buddhist worldview or a perspective can actually be useful in not unifying people. That's an old model. Like I know we're just going to all be unified, but actually trying to figure out how are we going to reimagine this whole thing? Because this way is not working. This kind of like either us or them pendulum swing is not working. And I think that the way that we're currently um, practicing 
uh, something is in there that has us kind of just getting stuck. Where we, maybe some of us get, you know, past like, you know, the anger and aggression. And maybe we can hold space for our brothers and sisters and those folks that we disagree with. But we are, we stop there and we actually don't take action still, right? So we somehow take that as a, okay, now that I understand and I can get with their suffering and I can get that that's painful for them, I'm just not going to do anything. And I think that that's a huge problem in terms of how Buddhism shows up in terms of politics, right? Like the Buddhists that are hating on Sharon because she says, you know, you should be voting, right? And so there's something that is in our, over, our overarching social um, narrative mm -hmm. that Buddhists that are sort of, you know, Western Buddhists trying to work with Buddhist principles are bumping their head against the ceiling of a Western social narrative, an American narrative, that is keeping them then from, from acting. That is to say, okay, if we're not aggressing and we're just doing us against them, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I check out, right? And I think that that's a lack of a deeper understanding and a deeper level of practice. Yeah. You know, I think some people would, I mean, I hear the question all the time is, isn't this kind of an action rooted not just in, in some kind of Western gloss on Buddhism, but in Buddhism itself, right? Like, I mean, at the, at the practical level, I get the question, if I start meditating, will it drain me of, well, some people say my, my career ambition, but other people say, will it drain me of my activist passion? And it's not a crazy question because, you know, in a certain sense, uh, you know, Buddhist practice is partly about learning to deal with any situation and preserving an island of equanimity under any circumstances. And when circumstances are highly adverse, uh, for example, if somebody you find horrible gets elected president, you know, one, one you know, job one you might think is just figure out a way to maintain the island of calm within. And of course, at the philosophical level, the question assumes the form is, is Buddhism ultimately nihilistic? You know, do, do, do you, are you so reluctant to make judgments? And so, in, in blah, 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 you've heard it all. But um, what, I mean, first of all, how genuine a question is it about, about Buddhism? And in, and in your experience, how big, a, how big an issue is it? I mean, do you, do you find that a lot of the people that you practice with, maybe not just here, but people you've observed in, in Asia or whatever, uh, Sharon, I know you spent a lot of time there in the, in the early part of your practice. Um, is, is this a genuine thing? to be concerned about, and then if, if you, after you, after you, after you address that, I may ask, like, what specific things can people actually go out and do? But, but for now, just, it, it, it's, it's not a trivial question, right? No. Vote. You can vote. Oh, no, that's why I'm smiling. <laughs> um, I would never say Buddhism was nihilistic, because that's, that's like 101, you know, that's the primary understanding, is that the middle path avoids both those extremes of uh, nihilism on the one hand and kind of absolutism on the other. So uh, somebody um, recently asked, somebody who's a student at one of these hallowed institutions up here, uh, asked me um, uh, what did I think about what Nietzsche said about Buddhism, which was a long time ago that I Read. So I said, what did he say? And he said, he said, it's nihilistic. And I said, then he didn't understand Buddhism. You know, I don't feel any hesitation in saying that because uh, you can say it's quietistic. I mean, that's an accusation that I think is more in keeping with what you're, you're describing that, you know, we, we, have access, we have a way to access our own peace of mind and this sort of wellspring of um, well-being and, and the sense of spaciousness. So... Why hassle, you know? That, I think, is an accusation that, you know, bears a lot of looking at, or the way some people would say it is there's no real prophetic voice in Buddhism, and maybe you'd say Thich Nhat Hanh now, but historically compared to, you know, the rabble-rousers in Christianity, for example, or Judaism, who were really trying to change society, you don't see that much of it, except for the Buddha, who, interestingly enough, turned a lot of things on, on their heads, you know? in terms of the caste system and so on. So um, 
I more come from it from the other side, obviously, from from an immersion in everything the especially the practices you know have been able to give me, and more here from activists who are at beyond their last legs, you know, and and it's from them that I really am trying to learn and understand what's it like. I mean, one person who's now a close friend of mine I met when we were on a panel together, we just put on this panel together, and she'd spent her life as an advocate working against violence against women, and she began with another kind of life, and then she almost accidentally witnessed some hideous, horrible, outrageous things, and that turned her life around, and she did this work, and she's, you know, constantly angry, and she was enraged when she first saw these things, and that set her on this new path. And then she said, and I don't know how to turn it off. I don't even know how to dial it down. You know, and so it's from people like her that I think, oh, well, you know, maybe a little quietism wouldn't be a problem, mm -hmm. you know, so that you actually can do the work that you so want to do and you're so passionately committed to in a more sustained way, because she was not going to be able to go on. And I think that I think what you're saying, the, the last thing that Sharon said is what I would say. It's like the the quietism is like internal, right? It's it so because I can understand or make sense of um, and connect to actually the suffering of uh, you know people that are whatever they're doing, right? They're you know patriarchal and misogynist, or they're uh, homophobic or transphobic, or all of the, I don't then forget everyone else that's suffering as a result of those people's behavior, right? And so I think that there's this um, odd kind of like, now that we're, we're seeing that and I can see the other side, I'm allowing myself to become uh, completely neutral. And that doesn't, uh, that, for me, that, that that doesn't land. It doesn't. It doesn't compute. It, somehow, in my matrix, that's not, not ever what happens, because I remain uh, intensely aware of the suffering of the, uh, you know, the the people that are getting thrown out of the country or not allowed to stay with their parents and families as, uh, you know, brought here like the dreamers that are brought here as children. I I remain still fully connected to the black men's bodies that are in the streets. I remain fully connected to the queer folks that are being you know, harassed or trans people that can't use a bathroom or all of these things. So the, they're not opposed in this way that is like, okay, one just cancels out the other. Now that I understand this, none of that rest of that stuff matters. It's just that there is a clear seeing in terms of how I'm operating in relationship to the people that are suffering and that are causing harm. I don't have to react out of an aggressiveness and um, violence towards them just because I get that they are also suffering. Mm -hmm. Because I still have all of this, and I still include all of the people that are suffering as a result of their behavior. And so I, I feel as, I so in fact feel more passionately committed to responding in a way that includes an awareness of the fact that they're suffering as well. So it's, it just drops for me an us against them rather and, and into a, like, oh, we have to like work with a bigger picture of what's going on that includes an understanding of their suffering too and what do we have to do. And sometimes you have to take the first action, which is like, first do no harm. So you need to stop doing what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if the people that are causing harm, regardless, I can understand everybody's suffering and be connected and it's great, but if you're the ones causing harm, you're the one that's gonna get some action turned your direction. Okay. So are there, um, you know, there are various areas of possible activism. There's the environment, there's social justice, there's, you know, foreign policy. Um, lately, uh, you know, suddenly prominent uh, is the issue of immigration and, and the rights of, of uh, people who are, uh, you know, who are subject to, to uh, stringent, to say the least, enforcement of, uh, of immigration laws. Um, are there particular areas where, in your experience, the um, American, American Buddhists are more active in than others? You know, and, I, and I, I mean, not just in the Trump era, but I mean, historically, are there some issues that, that they have gravitated toward, and are there examples of that activism? Um, 
that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's been a pretty strong allegiance to the environmental movement in all of its various manifestations. We have some great exemplars here in the audience. Um, I was at a conference with Angel some years ago in Cleveland where I learned a lot, and I learned the distinction between, uh, you could call it like, well, the way it was phrased there was social work and social justice work. You know, uh, there was a particular person presenting, and they were teaching literacy in um, the prisons of Texas, and somebody in the audience got up and said, you know, I would, the conference had the term social justice sort of attached to it. And the person who stood up said, I wouldn't really call that social justice. I'd call that social work. He said, like, how can you be working in the prisons in Texas without dealing with the racism that is driving that entire system? You know, that would be social justice. And that was the first time I realized a lot for myself, because I think what Buddhism does or what meditation practice does, I think it does open the door to a completely genuine good-heartedness. I think if you're going to give a person on the street a dollar, you recognize that's a human being. There's something about that process of, of learning and seeing more clearly. But do you then question, you know, what's the housing policy of this city? I doubt it. You know, that's a whole other kind of education. And I think the only, as far as I know, the, the most kind of advanced or progressed place that kind of thing has happened has been in the environmental movement. And I think it's left a lot of other arenas behind. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, it's changing, right? So it's changing with the demographic of Buddhism. I think it's also changing with the, um, oh, the recognition. I, 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 mean, I think that's true around the environment, but I also know that, you know, in terms of climate change, people, there are people that are raging, like avoiding, like Buddhists that are just in a place of like raging avoidance of dealing with climate change um, in the way that, you know, many people are in fact. Uh, but I think it changes according to the demographic. And I think the in the Trump era that one of the things that, that I'm seeing particularly, I, I think it has to do with like lots more younger people entering into Buddhist practice and contemplative practice more broadly. And so they're bringing with them their activism, they're bringing with them their um, recognition of uh, you know so-called racial justice issues as part of it, and trans issues, and queer issues, and immigrant issues, and all of those things, because they are activists or have been uh, sensitive to those things. You know, if nothing else, out of relationship, because they grew up in different worlds than their parents grew up in. We were once at a Buddhist, the Western Buddhist Teachers Conference, and we did that kind of cross the line game, and you could really see in the. Um, you know, I'll say the more mature Buddhist, when we, the, the question came up was how many people were owning class, like they owned property, they owned stuff, and the number of people that crossed the line that were older was huge, and how many people were, you know, uh, you know, meeting sort of like, you know, medium standards of living for, for younger people, it was, you know, dramatically different. But they crossed those same lines also in terms of their, then their relationships with people that were very different from them. And so mere contact is changing the kinds of social issues that people are interested in and connected to. Because uh, if you never grew up with you know, a black boy, then y you might have like a kind of distant concern. And, uh, but if you grew up with them and you know, they, were your, they were your peeps and you played ball in the street with them and all of those kind of things, then like what's happening with you know, in the Black Lives Matter era, uh, hits you differently. But this, this actually confuses me because I feel like that's anathema to Buddhism as I understand it and as I take it, so I've never actually understood why that has been true. It's, it's always seemed to me that it should not just be mere contact that should be changing the nature of how people care about the root issues and what's going on. Because it's really from Buddhist practice that I got involved or, or even paid attention to so-called racial justice issues because I was interrogating all of like what this thing made up 
that I call me, and it included interrogating race. And as I interrogated race for myself, then I became aware of how racial dynamics were playing out across uh, you know, lines of difference, like how it was for Asians, you know, for Japanese folks, and how people were collapsed as Asian people, and all of those things. So, you know, I'm always operating inside of this wondering of like, but why is that? Because everything that I grasp about Buddhist teachings taught me that you probe to the bottom. And, there, and, I, and I was talking about the ceiling before, that it, it feels like there's something that happens. I don't know if it's specific to here, and I haven't spent sufficient time in the East, so I only know here. It feels like there's this way in which we're like, okay, we can take it this far, like we can go this far and we can go this far, but we're not we're not going any further than that. So there's a, an element of um, in which I think our individualism uh, uh, um, contracts the uh, us fully extending into the the possibilities of a Buddhist practice, allowing us to really engage fully. So ideally, your empathy toward whether it's cognitive empathy, just understanding, or emotional empathy whatever, toward any group or person should not depend on uh, the contingency of your past relationships with people like them or people in their ethnic groups. In, in the ideal Buddhist world, that's irrelevant. That's, there's no correlation there. Yeah, I would think that that, in my, my mind, that, that that would actually distinct be one of the things that would distinguish a Buddhist worldview <laughs> and, a, and a Buddhist practice. Yeah. I mean, there might be some, some liberal Christians here who would, who would, uh, who would think that's, that's uh, part of Christian values, too. I don't know. But speaking of which, I, I do want to open this uh, up to questions from the audience. I quickly, before we do that, just want to give you both a chance to say anything, if you want to say anything, about, uh, well, the kind of horrible thing that happened in New York yesterday. Um, you know, what, what our president would call, what, what is he just on calling radical Islamist terrorism or something. Um, you know, it's been with us for a while, and I'm sure you get asked about it. And there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, there's, there's actual fear to cope with. Um, there's the question of what policies might make things better, and there's a connection between the two in the sense that some people want to harness, or you might say exploit fear, to favor certain policies and so on. Just quickly before we go to Q&A, is there anything either of you wants to say, uh, or, or a kind of guidance you give to people about how to think about this problem? Well, I, I mean, I think about it a lot, and I, you know, I've been thinking about it all day, and um, I've been talking about it in, in many ways today. I think uh, from the Buddhist point of view, you know, we, we need to learn to deal with the fear, because the nature of fear, when we're lost, and I don't mean feeling it, because we feel what we feel, but when we are completely wrapped up in it and it's overcoming us and it's guiding our decisions and our choices and our actions, then we're lost because it's, it's very nature's tunnel vision. It's like you don't get really afraid and think, you know, it doesn't work out this way. Maybe it'll work out that way. It's not going to work out, right? And so we, we lose any sense of space, options, ability to breathe. We freeze and it's not the place from which we can make choices. So, you know, learning to deal with fear. And there's to do with the grief. I mean, that's not an easy emotion. And I think in the West, it's particularly hard for a lot of people. We're not given those skills, or we're not necessarily brought up in a way that allows us to do that really well. And I mean, I think there's a lot to grieve. You know, this is like the new normal. This is like a thing to think about whenever you go anywhere, you know, if you're going to think about it. Um, you know, and so kind of being able to deal with all those feelings, I think, and not just alone, but collectively, I think is really an imperative. I, it's interesting, you've a couple of times that I've said, I'm sure people ask me about that. I think that people ask me different questions. I think that who wants to talk to me and ask me about things ask me different questions. Mm -hmm. And um, with respect, I think that some of the kind of the way that even the question is coming up is kind of like a somewhat of a pre preoccupation of a certain particular um, frame of like who we think of as Buddhist people are. So a lot of people that talk to me like take a lot of this as a given. Mm -hmm. We're just like, yeah, we, we done messed up and we have brought this on ourselves. And so this is not a surprise. And 
not that we're not in fear, and, and you know, and in fact, that incident occurred uh, literally on like around the corner from where I live, mm -hmm. uh, where where I grew up at as a as a young young person into most of my um, late, late teens, early twenties, and right before my early twenties. So it's it's really my home, and I think of it that way. You know, my mom was you know sending me pictures on on the phone, and I think of it that way, but. I think of it in a very, um, I think the way that I think of it and the way that I hold it is not this sort of, um, I'm not having a rupture with like America is like suddenly in this mm -hmm. like place. I do think like, mm, he's probably creating these really, you know, agitated situations and I expect that this is probably going to continue um, because we, uh, our, our political stance has been one that has not been respectful of a lot of other people's um, ability to actually catch up with the capacity to do some harm to us. And so the, I think our arrogant position politically has brought a lot of this about. And I think the people that talk to me and ask, ask me questions are interested in, in what I have to say or when I ask them questions are talking about like, what do we, what do, we do about that, about that fact, like how do we live inside of the recognition that we have a, a persistently arrogant political, you know, machine that goes out and creates these problems and that are now finding their way back into our lives. And so, the kind of um, orientation of self fear and how do I deal with that? It definitely centers more around people's own persecution by our government and, and not outside institutions, by our state police, you know, the way they're, they're being policed, by the way that uh, they're confronted with racism and the way they're confronted with ethno ethnocentric um, aggression and violence. So I think I get asked different questions because I'm, because I'm, I'm, I'm a, I inhabit a different body and, and uh -huh. um, it, it makes for different, there, there are people that are still Buddhist, but they're, they're asking me different questions. Mm -hmm. They're in different locations in their lives. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.